Welcome to the Prolific Creation Podcast. Uh, today we're joined here with Tommy, uh, creator of Stash House. So uh, welcome, Tommy, and uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, can you kind of tell us how, what what was your thought process of creating Stash House? Yeah, so uh, to give some backstory, I came from film and TV. I came to LA to do sort of screenwriting, um, film, TV, that kind of stuff. And it was when I was exploring that industry that I was uh, kind of partnered. Uh, we had some mutual friends uh, and we were told we should connect a writing uh, partner named Dawn. Uh, we had similar sensibilities and, you know, I was confused why, like, why are we being match made? Like, well, you know, <laughs> am I not a good enough writer? But reading Dawn's stuff, uh, he was really good at crafting character and it was just, he's a really solid writer. And I, I realized working with a partner is really nice in a creative endeavor. So it was really that matchmaking that sort of led us to become writing partners. So we wrote together for a while. And then, you know, we both got really burnt out in the film and TV side. Um, I was working at Disney. Dawn worked at Paramount. And we were both just very, I think, burnt out on the creative and the business side of things. Um, and so when immersive stuff began to sort of pop up, I was really intrigued. And I found that area like the sort of renewed interest in creative for me. So I started trying to just reach out to anyone in the escape room and immersive world. And this was right at the beginning, right at the beginning of like the uh, U.S. growth. And so I think literally there had been one or two escape rooms in L.A. And I I'd, I'd happened to go to them early and I was contacting the people that made them. Just saying like, hey, please, like, let me be part of this. Let me help. Um, and so I, I told Don about it because we were writing together. And Don saw what I saw too. He's like, okay, this is cool. So that's sort of how we move from being writing partners to business partners. Okay. And what really intrigued us about the escape room world was the writing ability. Like mm -hmm. yeah. the ability to craft stories in the world was really interesting to me, especially because the stuff we had seen up to that point was just like, it was pretty raw. And that's, I mean, expected. It's a brand new industry. You right. know, it's people trying their hand at something um, you know, new because they saw something and were inspired by it and rushing to make something. You know, the very first one in LA was the trapped in a room with a zombie that Marty, the guy from Ohio, started that he just sort of spread everywhere. Right. So I reached out to Marty and he became sort of a mentor to me and Don. We were originally going to work with him. And then after we got sort of deep in discussions, you know, he was really aggressive about being in and out fast. Okay. He was not going to be in escape rooms for a long time. And he sort of said, you know, maybe we shouldn't partner up, but, you know, take the knowledge I gave you and good luck. So okay. we had to sort of think, okay, well, we're not designing for Marty. We're designing now for us to right. fund and make. Right. That changed the perspective when someone else was paying the bills. So we were really inspired by trying to find a space that felt dangerous, that felt cool, that felt interesting. And we were trying to really just hone in on what that would be. And initially, there was some talk about doing an apartment. Uh, could we actually find an apartment building that had some way to do it? And obviously, you know, you have customers coming and going. It's residential. It's not right. zoned properly. Like, you're going to get shut down pretty fast. Right, right. So how could we make that vibe? How could we make it feel like an apartment? How could we make it feel like it's a place that, you know, is lived in? And that's sort of, you know, the, the way we started approaching looking for spaces. So Don found the location we're at in Koreatown. It was the sort of rundown dress store that the owner had just abandoned. Left everything behind, including the cash register. And it was just all the merchandise. The building was in really bad condition. Yeah. 
Um, but we saw the potential of it. And so it was just sort of, this feels right. And so, yeah, we went from transforming that space from a dress shop to Ray's apartment. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I'll be honest with you, when we, so uh, my wife and I are at 100, about 130, I think, escape rooms right now. And so when we uh, first got into escape rooms, <clears throat> um, the way that we would find out about other escape rooms was usually the Game Masters. This is before we even found out about Morty. And uh, Stash House was actually kind of like a like an urban like myth legend. Like, have you done this one where it's like it's like kind of like at an apartment and like I don't remember where it's out or what it's called. I'm like, no. I'm like, okay, like you know maybe we'll find it you know from another game master. And then all of a sudden, like all these game masters, like yeah, yeah, it's this one and this one's like super great. You have to do it. And and then like finally we got it's like it's called Stash House. Like we have to do this. Like we've heard so many great things. And and finally when we did it, we're like wow. Like it lived up to the hype. Like we were just completely mesmerized of of um, from the moment you step in, you almost think like okay, like uh, almost like a typical escape room where it's okay, this is the lobby, this is the, okay, you know, introduction, you know, we're told, like, hey, these are the rules, you know, do, do this, do this, whatever, and then, like, okay, here you go, and we're, like, what? <laughs> it's starting, like, this is it, and so it was, it was amazing to, to experience, like, okay, like, it actually feels like, you know, we're in the scenario, and that we're completely entranced and immersed into this, into the scene, and being able to, to participate in the activities that we needed to do, and then, uh, just how everything just flowed, and, worked well together so it definitely like made something super amazing that lives up to the hype that that's you know behind it um so then can you kind of walk us through your creative process as far as the the writing aspect of it yes and thank you for the kind words it's very humbling uh you know when we started it we didn't quite know what we were doing um it was a lot of ideas and things that we had seen you know um in other mediums, like in writing and in storytelling that we want to sort of inject into escape rooms. Mm -hmm. uh, we were really inspired by like the humor and style of like Grand Theft Auto, those games, and then Breaking Bad and The Wire. Those were sort of our three big reference points right. for how we wanted guests to feel. Uh, and so injecting that was really important, but also just like the feeling of having been a guest at other places mm -hmm. where the lobby and sort of the onboarding is dragged on. It just a lot of little things like that. The, how can we change this or tweak this in some ways and see how it works? And so it was really gratifying that people responded to it uh, in the way they did. So it was just completely unexpected. Uh, we weren't quite sure if it would work or not. Um, as far as the process, we knew we wanted it to be a drug dealer's apartment. And it, we really sort of went back and forth crafting the character of Ray. That was the most important sort of linchpin because Ray's presence was meant to be menacing, but not not someone you didn't like it was the sort of the making a stringer bell type character if you're if you've watched the wire or a character that is a bad guy but is someone that is also charming and likable right and so that was really important to find that and originally we were even talking about doing a version of ray that was different every single time so implying that ray was sort of a myth or a person that you know had you know, uh, people playing him. So you never knew who he was or who he actually was. Right. That was sort of the initial idea was you'd shoot like three or four different videos and Ray would be a different person every single time, uh, you know, as if he had sort of masked his identity. What really changed that was we had the opportunity, there was an art gallery out here that did a lot of immersive and cool experimental stuff called uh, Think Tank Gallery. And uh, I was friends with the uh, curator and owner of it. And he's like, hey, I'd love for you guys to do something here we're doing um, 
It's called Drinking, Smoking, and West Coasting, a, a show about sort of L.A. life. Okay. Would love to get um, you guys to do a thing out here. So we decided, well, this is a chance to kind of try out some stuff before we open. So what if we do Ray's origin story and use it sort of like a small, intimate, immersive experience? It's up for two people at a time. Uh, you could do it alone or with a friend, uh, but one or two people. So really small, really intimate. And it was all actor-driven, all story-driven. And for some stupid reason, we decided to do three different shows each night. So the idea is you could come back to back to back and do all three shows or do one of them. But if they did them back to back to back, they sort of would stack up. Okay. And so it was basically the three most important like days leading up to Ray's like life as a drug kingpin. So we were casting Ray and we were going to cast different actors as Ray when he was younger, Ray when he was sort of a little wiser and then Ray like senior drug dealer. And we met this amazing actor named Sidney. Uh, and Sid had the this drive behind him. He's a comedian from Chicago. And he's like, I really like this. I really want to do all three nights. We're like, dude, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be, right. you know, we, we we sold out the show. We have, you know, back to back to back, a little limited break. Like, this is going to be rough. Right. And he's like, no, no, I want to do it. So he, he did all three nights. He played Ray wow. all three nights. Yeah. And after that, it was like he nailed the role. He was hilarious. He is charming. He's quick on his feet, but also has an air of menace to him that just really worked. And so it, it sort of helped that we use this, these three things to develop Ray's backstory and helped us sort of put the polish on where Ray is now. Yeah. So that was really fun. But that also like we kind of had to stick with Sid for Ray. Like we had no choice because he, he was so perfect for this character. And he thankfully was game for it. He was really into right. the character and he's been an amazing partner. Uh, we still work with him on projects. So it's been really cool to have Ray be the linchpin of this. And then as far as the writing of Stash House proper, it was really about what was the space and what is it now? Right. In our world, Ray, uh, you know, got, you know, into the into the life of a drug dealer. He had some success. He ended up screwing over people, sort of very Machiavellian style, uh, and realized that he had to be aggressive to be able to succeed. And it was really a way of him lifting himself away from the life that he was in mm -hmm. and trying to make something of himself. And so, you know, it was the idea that he is not without empathy, but he realizes it's a weakness and that he needs to be willing to throw anyone out of the bus and use people and manipulate people with their weaknesses to succeed. And, you know, now that he's successful as a, as a, as a crime kingpin, he, he still has to have armies of people beneath him. Right. Um, the apartment that you're in in K-Town is basically his first apartment. And the idea is like, you know, we designed it in a way that, okay, if Ray came of age and got money, you know, at 16 and 17, he had cash, he would get an apartment. What would he decorate it as? What would it be? Right. And, you know, who, who are his influences? You know, what would he be doing there? What would he care about? What would he would not care about? Uh, so black leather couches, the silk sheets, like all those things were like very much about, you know, modeling after Ray, but also looking at references, looking at movies and TV shows and games that have sort of these environments in place and looking at real stash houses and real, you know, what young drug dealers are living in. We've gotten so many compliments from people saying like, I dated a drug dealer or like this apartment. Awesome, yeah. so it felt very authentic. We wanted to, you know, we weren't trying to stereotype. We weren't trying to, um, make fun of, we're trying to embrace like, this is an interesting lifestyle and it's an interesting choice. These people, these characters that have to sort of form yeah. to live in this world, you know, it was, it was very intriguing to us. Right. So the idea is that Ray always had a fondness for this apartment and always kept it. 
And we know people that still have their first apartments because they have a decent rent for it. They use it for underground stuff. Right. So uh, that city is that Ray lives elsewhere now. He's much more successful, but this is sort of a place he's got a fondness for yeah. and does sort of more underground stuff. And then as far as the fiction, Don and I were hired by Ray or manipulated by Ray to basically make this a testing ground for unsuspecting people to be part of his crew. Right. So that's how we fit in the picture is that Ray is listed as the owner of the business. People email him. Yeah. Uh, he's the one that sends you confirmation. Yeah. And then Don and I are just sort of unwitting pawns in his game. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah. I, I love how everything is just integrated and, and, and adds to that um, immersiveness and all. Right. And so can you kind of talk about on how, because I know you said that um, you started pretty, you started Stash House pretty early on in your, I guess, escape room endeavor. Yeah. Right. Um, so how has it evolved from when you first started to where it is now? Right. Because when you even looking back, you know, five, ten years ago, when escape rooms were barely beginning, it's changed from, I think, at least in my opinion, from escape rooms to, um, a, you know, that trendy word, immersive experience or immersive theater. Mm-hmm. And so how has, you know, Stash House, I guess, evolved or even, I guess, adapted, if that was a better word? I mean, to- I would say it hasn't. It's it's been pretty much frozen in amber okay. uh, since like 2019, okay. um, which is a high compliment. People are still showing up. Right. Yeah. For right. us, it was really it was the very first escape room I had designed, uh, and it was, you know, a, a testament to the process, which is something that people think I'm crazy for. But you know, Don, you know, and I sat back and started building mm-hmm. and had a lot of ideas, and in my mind. I wanted to test and really prove those ideas out. Yeah. So we tested a lot and we tested in multiple phases over a period of three to four months. Okay. Um, a lot of it was really about placement, about figuring out where to move. And so we had different testing phases. I had all spreadsheets I have made. We invited people yeah. uh, and we would sit there and we would sit in the room for the first couple of groups and just watch where people moved and made a heat map of where people moved around the space. Yeah. Um, a lot of the discoveries that are in the game were because of us watching. You know, I had, we had ideas and things we wanted to try and then we would see they didn't work and, you know, or something worked unexpectedly or people did things or like, oh, that's cool. What if we did that? Right. And so every game we'd sit there and have ideas. We'd obviously ask for feedback, but the point of testing is that you should pretty much know what people are going to say by the time they're ready to talk. Mm-hmm. You should know based on their behavior right. and the game, how it's played out, what's working, what's not. And, we would then sit back, we'd make changes, and the next group would come in. And then after sort of a couple rounds of testing, we would then go and make more progress, you know. Right. And it was all about, you know, we didn't lock in a single puzzle until we started testing. And it was a matter of, okay, well, if this is going to be painted here or installed here, we want to make sure it works. So let's do a paper and cardboard version first, make sure that's the right spot for it. Okay, it's working over here. Let's now mount it down or let's now make it more permanent. And right. it was really about taking these processes little by little and pushing them forward with data. And that was really, really important to us. So the first group that ever came and played, I think they played like 30% of the puzzles. They were all cardboard on paper and they didn't even know there was an upstairs. Um, so it was cool because we gave every tester in those early days tickets to come back later. And it's cool seeing them come back and see the finished product. Um, but once we got locked in, and the big note I give to people is like, don't make changes that are big unless you have a motivation behind it. The goal is mm-hmm. you're progressively making big structural changes at the beginning. And then as you're ironing, you know, at the kinks, the 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 the, the process makes it smaller and smaller. Yeah. Where 
you're doing small polishes and then the biggest goal is to keep track of that data once you're open and have that serve as a final proving ground because your your testers are always going to be playing in a different psychological mindset they're either people that know you or part of the community or they're playing for free right yeah, the people that are really going to be your real testers are the people paying for a ticket who don't know you right those are your real motivated people to actually have a good time right. who are entitled not in a bad sense but entitled and will play in a way again that they're going to play fully vested as if you are a business right and that's the most crucial people because that's that's your customer base and right, they, right. if your first group of people coming through don't feel like they're having a good time or their struggles then you, so that's where you really are doing your final round of testing yeah. as your first month of operations so we consider it like our previews and then once that was there we would make small changes and then really like keeping an eye on things because the change factor is important because it tells you if something is like if you have a weird spike in your data of like this puzzle that people are getting hints on 5% of the time or 4% of the time is not eating 15% of the time help something's up and it means something has been worn or reset incorrectly or there's an issue so the data really helps you not only make sure the game is working as a whole but also to catch maintenance issues and little right. things like that and catch quality and that's something driving nuts in games especially established ones where you're like come on like it's not hard to go through and see what's worn if you keep yeah. track of hints and data you can track and make sure the game is is still functioning the way it's intended right. and that's the really important part to me is that you know is the game if, if the game is high quality and people are you know expecting a certain standard from it you have a burden to make sure you're maintaining it right um so yeah once once it was sort of locked in we haven't touched it, it we made one set of improvements within the first few months and then um just changing a couple of things that were being included properly or that people are getting hints on and we made those changes but once it sort of got locked in place uh we still monitor for maintenance and stuff but yeah it's been sort of set and, and that's from mindset of, of of economical purposes you know you look at who's going to come back stashes has been played by a, a huge number of people and still people are coming changing a puzzle or investing in the space again doesn't make a lot of sense um unless we completely revamp it which also doesn't make sense right now it's still still selling so at some point we'll probably go back and and do a complete you know overhaul or do something crazy with the space where we have it uh we had plans to do a bonus game um yeah that, that actually the puzzles are already hidden inside uh, and they're just not clued, okay. um, so that people won't find them. And the hidden area is already installed, and the mechanism to unlock it is already installed. Um, so at some point, we might add that if we redo things. But for now, we realized it works, right. and there's no point in messing with that formula. As a oh. creator, of course, I'd love to go through it. I'd love to change everything. Right from a business side, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Oh yeah, and I think it's um, a lot of people don't take into consideration, especially for games that have been around for a while, just how expensive they, they can be, mm -hmm. right? Um, and just uh, talking to uh, another escaping creator, you know, he was talking about pouring, you know, 30, 40, you know, $50,000 into a room. It's like, that is insane. Like, oh, that's, and that's, that's, that's nothing now. Right, right, exactly. And that was, right, that's back then. And compared to now when mm -hmm. everything's even just more expensive, it's like, um, it, it amazes me that how escape rooms are doing so, so well. And then still creating new rooms, mm -hmm. right? Still being beautiful, intricate, you know, designs and and um, uh, still making you know money, profit off of it. But um, uh, you mentioned working with other people, collaboration. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk about on how that affects your creative process, especially you know, like you've said, 
as a person alone, you have a bunch of ideas and even more so when you have other minds working with you. Yeah. So Don, I mean, Don was my first big collaborator, you know, as my writing partner and business partner in Stash House. And I, I really liked it. And I think to me, it's like it taught me that, you know, having another person to bounce ideas off of to keep a check on you and to sort of help um, make sure you're hitting the right sort of concept for a project is really important. Right. And it's really about the trust factor. And if you find a partner or people you can trust and really allow, you know, I always point to the magic of like puzzle solving. When you have a group of people together yeah. that work together, invariably they will be better at solving something than a single person. There's sort of an alchemy that comes from people sharing an idea and pointing something out. And you're like, oh, wait, no, no, that. Oh, what about this? And you right. work together. And I yeah. feel the creative process is the same way. Okay. When you're working with other people that you trust, you're able to bring about, you know, um, better ideas or help inspire each other. And, you know, even if someone's like, I don't necessarily think that's a great idea, what about this? And if you really are insisting on your idea, it's good to have pushback because you then have to justify your idea right. and find other ways. It's not just like pushing forward. So to me, that's really valuable. So yeah, Don was my really big first one. And I've worked with a ton of amazing people since because I've worked on a bunch of other escape room projects and immersive stuff. It's my full-time job is designing this mm -hmm. stuff. And so uh, that really led for me having a healthy relationship with a creator uh, or a partner to kind of seeking that out whenever I work on another project. I don't like working alone for that reason. Okay. I like having someone to call me on my BS and right. for someone that can help bring out, um, you know, a better quality product and for me to hopefully do the same for them. Right. So as a, not maybe not as a, as a business um, owner side of it, but as a uh, creator side of it, what are your thoughts on, uh, rooms or experiences that are coming out that have um kind of different levels to play right um there's one out there where it's like you can shoot and i i understand the, the reasoning behind it right but of where it's like hey like this is like a really i guess kid version kid friendly which is fine and then you know uh ones for kind of like a little bit more mature and then one that's like completely r-rated or one that's even like hey like you know easy intermediate and then like expert or enthusiast i guess I, I like it i think to me the industry you know thrives on change right. and and trying out new experiments so if there's a way to make something more accessible to people i'm all for it i think it's really about is it actually achieving what its goals are which is producing a quality game where people go in feel like it speaks to them and they walk out wanting to play more and it's actually good at achieving what it is then i'm all for it it's it's sort of blatant cash grabs where you're charging money for hints or stuff like that that's seen as a purely uh, greedy thing that's not adding to the experience. But if it's something that is trying to play with a format or experiment with a model, um, especially leading towards making a better experience or making people, you know, because nothing, you know, we I always say in this common refrain in the industry, there's no competition that's direct. It's really about, to me, the only bad competition is bad games. Mm. Because that invariably is going to have someone's first game spoiled for them and they're going to walk away from the industry and never want to play another game again or they'll have to play a couple others before they realize oh wait i played a bad first one but the first thing you do in anything new is always going to set the tone for what the rest of your relationship is like in that industry right. and that's the dangerous side of bad companies that are either focused on uh, obviously no one is in this to make it for a charity but i always have of the mind that you will make more money if you make a good thing that people want to talk about, that are excited about. And you may pay more for it. You may not make as much, but in my mind, squeezing customers to get an extra 10 or 20% out of them is, is in my mind, you know, diminishing returns. Right. So any model that tries out new stuff, I, I think it's great. Um, they may not work, 
it may not be successful, but you know, to me, customers now have so many options about where they can go. Yeah. Um, that if you can find a game that people like, if you do a, a really extreme horror game, for example, and you have a version that's reduced, you know, where the frights are reduced and making mm-hmm. it more accessible to people, that to me is in your economic interest. Right. Because there's always a subset of people. Yes, you will get evangelizers and people that love horror that will show up because something's extreme. But you're always going to have people that are going to be turned away because of that as well. Yeah. And so in my mind, if there's a way to not reduce the quality uh, or the uh, impact of the game by making it more accessible, you're going to sell more tickets by making it where some people can play a non-frightening version or something like that. But again, I I think it speaks to the owners and to the people that run the game. Are they able to make something of quality in both versions? Right. Right. So as a creator, then what genre, I guess, of escape rooms do you like creating right more horror more adventure more i i i am open to i like being a writer and saying like what's your favorite story you know i i love all uh stories that are interesting to me right um it's really about the challenge if if someone's like create a generic game a zombie prison whatever i would be kind of annoyed it's really about creating weird stuff for me at this Mm -hmm. point that's trying to explore you know i guess if it is taking a theme that's been explored to death. Mm-hmm. What's something you can do that sort of turns those tropes on its head? Right. You know, um, you're kind of at a risk of playing with old tropes. Like, a, I don't think I could ever do a pirate game, for example. I've played a lot of big pirate games. Some of them are amazing. You know, you're sort of left with tropes, though, that you're kind of like, what else can you do? Right. Um, so I kind of like going with genres that are kind of unexplored, that are more story-based. I work with a lot of IP for companies like Amazon or Netflix or Disney. And working with IP is really interesting because you're dealt with a lot of restrictions, but you're also able to explore stories that people are very familiar with. And it's really fun to play in those worlds, especially if you have a little more freedom. So yeah, to me, it's like, if I'm doing something on my own, I want to play with things that are unexpected okay. um, or or genres or things that have twists or surprises in right. Um, so yeah, I, I would say uh, pretty much anything. I kind of like challenges, but to me, it's always about, for me, it's, if, can I put a twist on it? Can we find a way to make it surprising to people right. or do a mechanic or a cool element that is going to be, uh, unexpected or really, really fun to play with. Right. Right. Yeah. What about as a player? Any favorite that you like, Hey, like, I think an unexpected stuff. I love mechanics that are untested uh, or not untested, but like unexplored um, in other areas. Like they're, t- I love time loops. Time loops are really cool. To, like they're some of my favorite storytelling, time travel and time loops are really fun. And there aren't a lot of games where I've seen that uh, expressed in the full way I think is possible. You know, there are little hints you might get with cool changes where you go in a room and walk back and it's changed. Like right. that's cool. Like I love big scenic reveals. Yeah. Um, but those are expensive and hard to do. Uh, and it's cool. It's mind-blowing. I love big scenic stuff. I'm a big sucker for big scenic stuff, but who isn't? But to me, it's also intimate storytelling. Like, yeah. is there a story that can actually make me cry or can surprise me? Most people who play story in games, you know, if you're playing a video game, you might want to start skipping cutscenes because you're like, yeah, come on, come on. I do. But but it's to me a story that can look hook me in yeah. in a way that's not forcing me to watch a three minute intro video right. and force me to listen to audio logs like you know again I'm not playing a game to be lectured at so it's games that can inject story in the design choices uh, in the storytelling aspects of that I think really I, I really like that but also I think just anything that can surprise me um, I love twists or unexpected stuff. 
um, some of the simplest puzzles, I think, done in really cool story-driven ways, you know? So, yeah, I think that's what I always am looking for, is just what's unusual stuff. And it's cool because, you know, I've played over almost 700 games now. I have friends that have played thousands. Right. And, you know, there's little small weird mom and pop companies that still pop up and will go play and they'll do something really cool and unexpected. Yeah. And that's what's really exciting is that you never know, like every game I kind of go on optimistic about like, what are they going to do that's cool? And right. it's not that I'm jaded. I've seen a lot of stuff, but I still get excited when there's something really interesting popping out. Right. Um, but yeah, for me, like time loops are really cool and I, I want to see more of them because I think there's some really cool stuff with the idea of like learning from trying and failing and then resetting that's really interesting to me there's a game in canada um in montreal that that is a time loop game and they do some really cool stuff but i think they're just scratching the surface on what you can do with like a time loop okay awesome um can you tell us about a time where you were able to be i guess your most creative creative sorry oh yeah i mean it's my job to make stuff like this and so i think you know due to NDAs and, and projects, like I, I have to be more vague, but um, my favorite moments are figuring out ways to craft engaging moments um, for audiences mm-hmm. and getting people to sort of come out of their shells. Yeah. Um, I love nothing more than getting a group of enthusiasts or people that are diehard solvers coming and having fun. Like, but that's kind of fish in a barrel. Like, right making a good game will get them excited but to me it's getting people that are not yet enthusiasts or not yet passionate about the stuff to discover they are right you know and so it's you know people that come into a game or into experience arms crossed um i always call it like the the kids that are too cool for school <laughs> you know that the, they're just our, our body language blocked off you know are they they stand far away from a puzzle or, you know they're not engaging with the group right and then watching as that behavior can melt mm-hmm. to me that's when i'm at my best is being able to craft something that gets people to initially look at something and be like this is impossible and then five minutes later they're diving in they're noticing stuff yeah. so and that's probably my favorite like reward for a specific instance there is a project i worked on that needed to sort of f- fill in a gap we had a moment with actors uh, that had a story and we needed to kill some time with the story that was kind of required based on the ip mm. people expected it but the kind of client was a little bit nervous about it because they're like eh well, do we really need this but i really wanted to fight for it because i'm like we can do a really cool moment of storytelling and audience agency helping shift the story so these two characters were fighting and i kind of crafted the story that you know you could help one of the two characters but I wanted to kind of reward and have all these possible outcomes. And like, no, this is too complicated. But basically I pitched a way of pulling it off where these people were fighting and then they would separate and you would be able to go and help either one of them or both, you know, or you could try to broker peace between them. Mm-hmm. And it required you, if you're going to try to broker peace, you had to figure out what actually was the source of their conflict. Right. And so you had to go do research a little bit, escape roomy, and go do some digging in the environment and find out what actually happened between them. Mm-hmm. And if you did and brought evidence to both of them, then you could actually cause peace to happen. But that was like the super bonus mm, okay. thing. And we had a little trail that's peeking at the people could sort of pull those threads they wanted to, but it was that was like ultra hard mode. That was like bonus Easter egg. 
And then, you know, you could go and help one side or the other. You could even cheat and like be like, I'm helping you. And then secretly go over and help the other guy and like be like, so, but it was cool because there were multiple outcomes that would come out. And so if you went multiple times, this event would feel like, oh, there's an infinite number of outcomes. In the reality, there's only a handful. Right. And the actors knew what each one was. Right. And there was a way in which they'd know who would win that night. And then people, the winner would boast, the loser would sulk. And you could still feel like, oh, I helped this person win. Or, oh, no, this guy lost. Let me go console him. But right. it gave so many outcomes. And it affected so much of the story in a really positive way. Yeah. But the, the people involved were like, no one's going to do this Easter egg one. And I was nervous because I didn't want that to be every night. But we ran a bunch of tests of it of the whole experience and we ended up getting pretty much every outcome person a one person b one and then the easter egg happened right and the person who solved it was so excited and it, when it worked it was magical because then it sort of opened up and made it feel like oh anything is possible yeah. here and that was kind of the goal was working on something where you feel as an audience member anything is possible like there's magic here yeah. there's magic in the story in the space and in reality there's there, there, there it isn't there's only a handful of things yeah. but you don't know that right and to me as an audience member i love discovering when i talk to a character or i solve something yeah. and the environment responds or a story reacts and you just for the brief moment you feel like you're in you know in a story and that you're affecting it you're a hero right um, so I like creating those moments and I, I was really proud of how I could, uh, taking a really complicated thing and simplifying it and then showing to the client and towing to the world, like this works and it can work really effectively yeah. regardless of how the outcome plays out. So yeah, I like taking stuff like that challenges and playing that. That's awesome. Uh, can you tell us about, uh, the most creative, cause I mean, you mentioned that you played, you know, 700 plus rooms, um, the most creative or it can be a handful, you know creative puzzle that that you've experienced the most creative yeah probably there's a, a puzzle that i really loved in uh, a game in hamburg uh germany um from a game called ernie hudson and the wailing woman um it involves a bell and i won't spoil it but it's i, I found it really really cool it's very story driven um, and the moment is just really, really cool. And it really inspired me because of how simple it is. Yeah. And it's a puzzle, but again, it's just like what we talked about. Like it feels very open-ended, but the design of it is really clever and it's really inspired me. And I'm sure I've probably made it better in my mind because of how effective it was for yeah. us as a group. And then talking to other people who have played it, it may not have been as effective for them. Like we happen to have a really good GM. The puzzle made sense to us. It took just the right amount of time. But to me, it was one about information and paying attention. Mm. And I really like that. Like the idea of a good puzzle is dependent upon the context. You know, a good puzzle, like there's one that I love that's like a beautiful word puzzle that is one of my favorite logic puzzles ever. Um, but I would never put that in a game because that's one you need to sit with for a long time. Right. It's better to work out on your own. There's video game puzzles that are again amazing that I would never put in a room. So to me, a really good escape room puzzle is dependent upon what's good to solve as a group. Yeah. Um, is it fun? Is it somehow physical? Why is everyone in the group? Is it fun to watch? Is it is fun to play? Does it have insights for everyone? So it's hard. Like there's amazing puzzles that are good for like two people that as soon as you put three, it's not working. So to me, it's like, I'm really picky context wise about like, a perfect escape room puzzle is one of which the group succeeds and it just it's usually something also physical as well as mental right. that just is fun to do 
But the one in that German game, the Wailing Woman game, was just really fun because it it it, it served the space really well. It would not work in another medium. Right. Um, but that's always kind of what I'm looking for is, you know, uh, stuff that uses a physical space well and that the group, like, one of my favorite group of designers um, is Matt Ty from, he has Arcane out here uh, and then Spencer BB and him uh, from Escape Chronicles. They created a company called Level Games and they made some really cool games that have some amazing physical puzzles um, that have amazing contraptions and just really cool reveals that just like I always would get so delighted at seeing how they would use the medium of escape room design really well. Where again, it's like a physical puzzle in a space yeah. that you're physically manipulating as a team and seeing this stuff get revealed is just so cool. Yeah. Uh, and then Patrick Fye, who uh, made the game's Evil Genius, um, the game The Morgue that he did, his third chapter of his Evil Genius saga, has some incredible puzzles that are just like, also I think good puzzles in my mind are about establishing a tone um it's not just solving something it's putting you in the mindset of what are you actually physically doing for your answer like just typing in a keypad is kind of boring but if it's you trying to like the bad version of this would be like i'm solving it by pushing my hand somewhere you know uh, you know dark and scary and it's got wet texture to it and you know uh it's a puzzle about being scared or trusting and to me it's like having those extra layers that as you're putting the answer in or as you're solving it, you're having to physically put yourself in the mindset of what the puzzle is. Yeah. Obviously, horror games do that very well. Right. Um, so anything that, again, utilizes that method too of like making you feel something as you're inputting it or researching it, it's like, it's really hard to do. Yeah. But when people do it, like it just sings. Right. And so as a creator, then how do you implement a puzzle into a good story right and obviously making sure that it flows well not just to oh there's a random puzzle for me to whatever yeah figure out a number I mean, code or whatever and this this is an ongoing challenge uh, i teach a class on escape room design um and this is one of the big things that's sort of my lesson of why are puzzle in escape rooms there's a debate about it but you know it really goes down to intent and the overall intent and assumption you make as a creator and hopefully as an owner is that your goal is to entertain people right we go back to the days of people uh opening games that have you know this is a five percent success rate mm. and in that case you've designed a bad game um success rates are pointless and silly and an archaic fad that i wish would just go away um to me getting people through your game letting people complete your experience and have a whole holistically good time rather than like pushing them out as fast as you can or like telling them they're going to fail having limited number of hints is really silly and ridiculous so those tropes i would love to go away but getting to that point of why puzzles are in games they're not to trip you up right. they should not be there to deliberately block you right. where the gm is reveling and laughing because you can't figure it out like to me those make me angry because they turn people off right there's a game where an owner or a gm was telling us before we went in that they group arbitrarily used up their three hints early on and sat in the room and was miserable and i'm like you're negligent like you should not be doing this you're terrible as a person and as an owner uh i didn't say that but that's what i felt right, right, right. um so to me like you can tell when people design puzzles thinking oh they're there to trip people up not to help people succeed and so in my mind they should be doing two things puzzles should be 
building up an intensity and in challenge so that you're progressively getting more confident in the style of the game. You should have some easy wins at the beginning, some things that are a little simpler, more task-based, help you open up the space, and then get progressively more challenging. And then about two-thirds of the way through the game, you know, between the 65 to 75% mark should be the most challenging puzzle in the game. And then the last puzzle or two should be fun and rewarding, probably a big group task of some kind, but then you rushing to finish, get that adrenaline rush, you finish the game, yeah, you did it. So that to me is one purpose of puzzles is to help that flow of the rising action and then the big whoosh of reward at the end. You walk out feeling this adrenaline high, this excitement. Yeah. Um, so obviously your hardest puzzle should not be the last one because you want people to have that last rush at the end. Yeah, yeah. From the other side of it is story driven. You know, in my mind, why are puzzles here? And they're there because a lot of times in new forms of entertainment, people don't know how to consume it. And if you have a book and give it to you, you know how to read it. You're not going to be confused and be like, which page do I look at? Right. You know, yeah, there are some books that play with format and swipping to different pages. But but on the whole, like, you know how to watch a movie, too. Again, it's not an experimental movie. It's a standard movie. You hit play. Yeah. You know where to look. You look at the screen. You watch from start to finish. Right. And that's as the creator intended for you to go through it. Right. With puzzles and with story, they can serve as a way to gate you, anchor you in the world. And that you are not ready to proceed to the next phase of the story until you've earned the the narrative and you've earned that chance to move ahead. Okay. So it's really there to block you from spoiling the ending. Because if I, you know, take you to a final room where it's there's a big emotional climax or there's a cool discovery and you've been building to that and you see the ending early, like that doesn't make sense. So puzzles are really there to help you learn and earn what a story is yeah. so if you can align those two things the excitement factor and the adrenaline building and the story element put them together that's like a perfect puzzle to me yeah. is learning how to place it so you know and then how do they fit in obviously environmentally they need to fit in in sort of yeah. a, what we call like a diegetic way where they're 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 not just arbitrarily there you know there's some amazing games that i've played that have a random sudoku for no reason yeah and unless you're you know and there are a couple of games that I've seen that are like, you're on the subway or on a bus and there's like a Sudoku book there. And it's like, okay, I kind of understand why you put that. There's a narrative reason why a person is doing Sudoku on the bus. But then why does this Sudoku solve to a code on the bus? Mm -hmm. And there's always escape room logic. I understand that. But to me, it's like, it, it should feel environmentally appropriate to the space. Not every puzzle has to be like very narratively grounded where it's like, why is this here? Who put this here? Why is it here? Right. Um, why did they design the bus this way that the bus needs a puzzle to open? You know, I don't need an answer to all of that. But to me, if you can find a way to ground and justify things, yeah. it just makes it better. Um, so integrating them in some capacity and utilizing the environment. I love it when stuff is hidden in plain sight, where at the very beginning you walk in a space and you look around and you say, oh, I can sort of start telling what's a puzzle. But it's not just like aggressively standing out. Right. You know, I, I like it. Obviously, you should know what a puzzle is. There shouldn't yeah. be mystery as to like what one isn't and then have to figure out what to do. Like you should know what a puzzle is. It's the solving of it. That's the mystery. Right. But if they're integrated and kind of cool in a way that they sort of, you know, kind of like when you're looking at paint samples and you're looking at all the whites side by side and like they all look the same. Then you stare at it like, oh, the, right. the yellows and the reds are coming out a little bit more like that to me is also really cool. And they're integrated right right and so then as a creative do you per do you lean more towards um puzzles or more towards uh, i like to call them task-based uh, i solve i think they're i think no i think i think there's a, a purpose for all of them again like right. i love puzzles um 
obviously a task-based solve in a puzzle book or an at-home escape room is not fun. There's no, you know, so it's like, again, it has to be justified for, for talking a physical space, task-based and more physical-based things work really well, especially when you're working on a team-based game yeah. in a physical space. Um, yeah. But to me, I see the task-based and the more mental puzzles and sort of everything in between as being part of a good recipe. You know, a good recipe does not just have one ingredient. Right. It, it uses them all well and, and it, you know, appropriately. So to me, it's like I like seeing a good mixture and a good uh, progression of how are you using the space? Right. How are you using the puzzle types? Is there a nice variety of things to do? Are they all grounded and justified in the story? Are they yeah. progressing things appropriately? Um, you know, and if you can start checking these things off, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been multiple times um, recently where we go to do an escape room right it leans a lot more towards um just doing the completing a task mm -hmm. as opposed to uh you know the puzzle part and and me personally i like that satisfaction of like you know you put in you know numbers or whatever and like a little click a little ding or you know that little you know you hear something open like right. okay where is it right um and so in as the industry is continuing to evolve do you think more rooms now are leaning more towards that uh, completing a task to, I guess, um, not justify, but adapt to that immersive theater aspect of it? I think everyone's different. I think every creator's different. And I think you're going to keep seeing people experimenting with right. it. I think to me, like, I love, again, formats that play around with different things. Yeah. I, I really like rooms and games that have actors where the actor is part of the puzzle. Right. And especially if it's satisfying. Right. Um, I love games that work in unison where you might learn a fact or an information where the actor is not engaging with you or is not helping at a certain point, but then you go physically solve a puzzle, open up like a safe, for example, get a bit, a bit of info about them. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you know, the actor, you know, uh, you know, this character has a trigger word where if you say this word, they'll switch into spy mode and help you. And then you look at the mm -hmm. character and you're like, mm -hmm. rutabaga, and then they transform. Like, it's really cool seeing that stuff play out. Yeah. So I like it when, when uh, you know, there there's task-based things that have a clear payoff. Where I, what I don't like is when things are just purely manually triggered because of an arbitrary thing. That that feels less magical to me. And there are games that, that I think can do it well. But to me, that's where I really get frustrated with the task-based stuff is mm -hmm. if it's arbitrary. Right. To me, it's like, okay, with, with telling a character a code word that is grounded narratively and is earned through doing other puzzles and you get to that point and you get it, there's a reason why that code word is locked down and then the actor has a clear payoff and that progresses the story to the next phase. To me, that's structured well. But if it's really about like the actor, you know, or the person watching on camera didn't see you do the thing the first time and you're like, I'm doing the magic dance. It says do a dance in the in a circle. And if I'm doing it and it's not triggering, you're like, I don't know what's going on. To me, it should never be about ambiguity. It should be about clarity and certainty. Yeah. And if it's doing a task, I mean, I want the task to have a, some kind of payoff yeah. that's probably not manually triggered. Or if it is done well where I don't know how it is done. You know, right. so to me, it's like I, I think it's more I'm responding to the quality of the design and how well it's being run. Yeah, because that's the other aspect, too, is you can craft an amazing world, you know, world renowned game. Yeah. But if it's not able to be run on a Tuesday at 10 a.m. Right. And every Saturday for five years, you know, maybe not five years, but if it's not able to be run consistently at that same quality, you do not have a world class game.
Right. It has to be run consistently. And that part of it is that if you're doing a task or a process or your performer is doing something, it has to be consistent across that. And that's one of the dangers right. is, you know, with the students I work with, they only have to make a game that is run a few times. Right. But when you make a decision, you know, there's a, a big eye-opening fact in that McDonald's where they decided to add kale to their salad. And suddenly they became the biggest kale supplier in the country. You don't think about that scale, but it's out of that, it, it, you know, it's very much like that where, okay, you're going to have this thing happening in your game and it sounds cool, but that means you have to make sure every single game, every single staff member you have, every single actor you have, whatever is doing this consistently at the same quality for every game. Right. You know, if I tell you to watch this amazing movie and you watch it, we're not going to be confused because the movie is not going to change between where maybe, you know, George Lucas might re-edit it, but it's going to be consistent, same movie. But if I tell you to go play this amazing game yeah. and you have a different experience because the actor or the prop piece is not performing as envisioned, that's the danger, I think, of, of trying really crazy stuff is it has right. to be consistent. Right. So to me, it's like as long as companies are nailing the consistency of it, the feeling that it's not confusing what you're doing. If you're doing something weird that has to be a task or manually triggered, it still feels satisfying. Yeah. It still feels like you're solving a puzzle and it's aiding your journey and the things are flowing really well together. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's just really about any experimental stuff learns from what's working and fixes it. Because right. if it's not, change it. Like again, I love going and trying stuff that is trying weird cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I walk out disappointed, I'm always like, cool, how do you improve that? Yeah. So I admire people taking that swing, but the hope is that people taking that swing realize it's not paying off and fix it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so then how, as a creator, how do you ensure that consistency and not just for the player, but also for the, in this case, for the game master, right? Because we've been to multiple rooms where, hey, you know, we're doing the seance where, you know, we put the key here, like, and they're like, oh, you know, sorry, you know, give me a second or, oh, like, try it again you know like do it again They're like oh there it goes like you know and they obviously had to trigger something so how do you ensure that yeah i mean you can't guarantee 100 percent of the games are going to work but the, what you can guarantee is a system in place that empowers your staff right. and gms are a a you know the linchpin of this industry because they're the ones that are running a game day to day right and it's making sure do they actually care right about the game right there are a lot of staff members and people at games I played that just do not care. Yeah. And you can feel that. And they can make a good game bad. Yeah. On the other end, I've played with staff that clearly are passionate about what they do. Yeah. And the owners have bad to average games. And that passionate staff member who cares yeah. makes that and elevates that game higher. Yeah. So to me, it's really the difference between, you know, it, it's sort of like you have a letter grade. They can make a game an A plus, that's normally an A minus, mm -hmm. or they can make a game that's an A minus, you know, uh, like a B minus, <laughs> and they really are bad. Right. So to me, you really want to empower your staff. You want to make sure that they're trained well. That yeah. you have processes in place that are easy to follow. Yeah. Um, you know, as much automation as possible, but then as much manual intervention po as possible. So if your staff is watching, and you know, a good example, um, if they're watching and listening they'll know when you solve stuff right and if you're putting in a code and they see you've put in five of the right numbers and you said the right thing but maybe you didn't hit the thing fast enough mm -hmm. they should trigger it for you you got it right right it's awkward when you put it in and you don't know is it the hardware it's the element of trust right which is a really important factor in game design yeah there's a really good example there was a game uh played a couple years ago where a lot of the tech was not working right and, you know, at the halfway point of this game, we're not trusting the tech. 
Right. Whereas one puzzle in this room we have not solved. And we are not sure what we're looking for. <laughs> and this game has a lot of thematic design with candles. Right. And a lot of the candles were broken. And we assumed that was because the game was jank. The, a lot right. of stuff has not worked. Right. And it's only after we're like, oh, the ones that are burnt out are actually on purpose. That was hiding Morse code or something. Yeah. But because we had already had this sense of lack of trust in the game yeah where the keypads weren't working the tech was broken that we weren't looking at things that were deliberately off in order to keep progressing yeah. and if you don't trust a game you're going to be if you have an answer wrong you're going to be like is it us wrong or is it the game right. you're going to be a little saltier attitude's going to affect things so that's another reason to have your gms on top of stuff be on yeah. top of maintenance because again if you're salty it just that attitude can sort of seep and poison the group you're in yeah for sure you know and so again that's why having staff that also are empowered to check the game, not just reset, but right. look and see, is there, you know, is this map where people are touching things, is the, where they're fingering it, is it worn? Do right. I need to replace it? Are there clear signs of, of wear and tear on this prop? Um, you know, in the data, if you have data collection that's automated, that should also help you. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's really building a game, again, that can be run, and you're setting up your staff for success. Right. That's really huge, I think. It's the least sexy part of a game is the business side of it people don't get in to be like how can i make a operational system that's going to be awesome and train staff but it is really important yeah. and unfortunately a lot of people don't treat their staff of that they pay the minimum wage and right. you know treat them like they're there because they have to be but again in my mind if you empower your staff yeah. you know give them bonuses give them as much incentivization to care um you know, you can make sure your game lasts. And of course, stuff happens. It's also how do you make sure it's dealt with? Yeah. And so if something does happen, can they enter the game in character? Right. You know, if something is screwed up, can they still make it a fun interaction? Right. And, and as opposed to being like, oh, hold on, you know, walking in a game. Okay, what have you solved? Right. What do you need help with? It's like, right. ooh, blood boils. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely kills the immersiveness. There's a ring that, that my wife and I did with a, with a group and... um you know, not hating on, on, on the way that they would uh, give clues or, you know, come and help. But essentially their whole thing was, um, you know, they would come in every every uh, 15 minutes. And after like, the, you know, 30 minutes have passed in the game, then they'd come every like 20 minutes. Um, and so they'd and they would come in, not even in character. And, you know, usually in a, for me personally, in a, in a, in a scary or, you know, spooky room, mm -hmm. like, it's important to have that darkness and like that spooky feeling to it right because if not like even like a little light will kill the whole thing right like the light on my watch shines like crap like you know doesn't mm -hmm. feel like it anymore mm -hmm. and so and he's like hey guys you need help or everything going okay oh, it, it, to me it's like there are so many elements of of what's wrong with a lot of companies that don't even try the base level of of, of raising the immersion or just trying to at least try and keep it fun yeah. so you're right those things sap away the energy yeah you know, I've given talks at conferences where people challenge me and say, like, I don't have to do that. And it's like, you don't have to, but if you want your customers to have 5% better experience, like, in, in my mind, why wouldn't you? If it's minimal effort, yeah. anything that you can do to raise the bar of your company or the quality of your game or the experience is worth doing. Yeah. That, and that's just stuff that's free. Right. The attitude you bring to staff or empowering them to have fun with it, like, I mean, those things are free and they yeah. add more. And then even with minimal expenditure, you can still raise the bar of your lobby or yeah. so to me, there's no excuse for not doing it. And I right. think, again, companies that refuse to, uh, you know, are going to fall behind.
Yeah. Um, I don't want anyone in this industry to go out of business except for companies that refuse to evolve or treat customers, you know, in their games at that level, you know? Right. Right. And so you mentioned something about the, uh, and I think this adds to the immersiveness too of, of the, of the lobby. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this before to, uh, uh, when talking to another guest of, uh, it's amazing to see how, how the lobby or even how the restroom, right. I saw a, a, a Facebook post of like, Hey guys, like how important is, you know, having a, an amazing restroom setting to your experience. And like, it was like 50, 60, 80% of them were like, yeah, like it's super important. Like it needs to play along with like, you know, with the whole vibe of the, of the lobby, as opposed to, you know, just white walls, you know, this and that. And so, um, even just stepping into a lobby or maybe I'm, and obviously to, um, you know, to how you've designed a stash house, right? Maybe not even having like, but how, how important is it to adding to that immersive? Oh, hundred percent. There is a quote, um, that repeatedly gets said in this in- industry, but, it, and it comes from a, a Nordic LARP designer named Joanna, um, that is everything is a designable surface, everything. And to take that one step further, if you have not intentionally designed something, mm-hmm. lack of intentional design does not mean it's not been designed. You've just inadvertently left it the way it was. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a talk I give on how do you apply intentional design to everything in your business and why, why you should care. And it's because, yeah, you, you, to, anything that touches your customer or a guest affects their experience. And if you are not controlling it, you're just sort of like arbitrarily going, well, we'll see what happens. Why wouldn't you try to apply some basic level of control of their experience from your ticketing platform, the website, the pre-game communication, directions about parking, you know, when they arrive, hints, bathroom breaks, how you store items, the policies about when you take a photo afterwards, like everything in that process should be designed both to amp up the customer to make sure you've reinforced the good time they've had and then empower them to feel connected to your business so that when they leave, they want to tell people, oh my God, you never guess what I just did. Yeah. And whenever they t- share that experience, they'll relive the memory of what they've done. Right. And it's, it's a chance to really, again, control as much as you can. Yes, there's stuff you can't control. You can't control kind of day they've had. Right. You can't control the weather. Right. You can't control even some elements of like a meteor could crash into your building or the power yeah. could go out. Yeah. Why would you surrender control to the things you can control? Right. It just seems silly. So to me, you know, and I've gotten pushed back, but hopefully more people have listened to that lesson of try to design everything you can and be intentional about it, even if it's very minimal, but it all affects the experience at the end. Um, a lobby, you know, you have multiple first impressions. You have the first impression of what am I buying a ticket to? What's the communication like? I bought a ticket. When they show up on site, the lobby is that first meeting moment when you go on a date and you see the person like what do you see and oftentimes if it's a bad lobby or a bad experience with a gm i mean there's there's a game i played with my friends a couple years ago where we were sitting outside in the uh, in a parking lot eating dinner between we were playing a bunch of games that day and we had no time for dinner so we grabbed fast food we were shoving you know food in our face and we get inside and ask to use the bathroom and the staff member is like you know, you shouldn't sit outside in the parking lot and uh, not come inside and use a bathroom because you're going to be late for your game. First thing he said to us. Wow. And he did not realize that we were owners who happened to be friendly with the owner of his company. And uh, we weren't looking to get him in trouble, but we right. were pretty salty. And so we shared and he, he definitely was very different to us when we got out of the game. 
not that we're looking for good behavior, right. but it's like, right. don't be a jerk when you're greeting customers. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that intention was, but it definitely is like, yeah, your first interaction with the lobby, with the staff is setting your tone for that entire interaction. Yeah. And if you start negatively, you are doing yourself a disservice where people may still love the game, but nick you for, you know, having a bad interaction yeah. and that you just don't know who you're greeting. You don't know what they're, you know, there are so many experiences I've had in life where I run into someone or do something. And I have no idea who they are. And turns out they were, had a big impact on something. And if I had been a jackass or a jerk, like I could have affected that negatively. Yeah. You just yeah. never know. Like every customer is re the most important one at that moment because yeah. yeah, they will potentially tell a million people about your business or yeah. they might tell them to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. So, yeah. Can you, and you talked about this a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on Mm. rooms that have uh, a no, I don't want to say no phone policy, but like no picture policy. Like, hey, you want to take a picture? Sure. It has to be yeah. this specific background or. Mm. I think it's hit or miss. I think, I think to me, I understand the intention behind it. Right. You know, for us at Stash House, we try to avoid people pulling out their phones mm -hmm. just because I've been in those groups where someone's on their phone and it's distracting. Yeah. You want to try to control the environment as much as possible. Right. Um. But at the end of the day, you should never feel like you're having to wand your customers because you're walking into some top secret nuclear test site. Right. There's a game that one of the first games I played in LA that literally wands you like you're going through the security at an airport. And I'm just like, this, this is dumb. Like, what do you care about? So if someone videos your game, like, who cares? Um, what are they protecting? Like, who's going to watch that video and go, I shouldn't go play that? Uh, what are you spoiling? You right. know, I, so to me, I think it's silly when people get them out of shape. I don't mind if they say, you know, please keep your phones in your pockets or, you know, but I also, if they take my phone from me, I think it's dumb. Yeah. Um, so I would say like, I completely empathize. I don't think it's necessary anymore. Right. And I think in fact, you know, anything that can make the customer feel like you're not, they're not being trusted or they're not being, um, treated well is bad. Right. And anything that a customer you know, wants to do, they're going to do anyway. Yeah. And, you know, trying to encourage people to not break the immersion and still have fun. Right. Having a jackass in the corner on their phone is annoying. <laughs> but at what cost yeah. by making the group feel like they're being scolded or right. going through some high level security? Right. So there are some contentious times where, you know, I play with groups where, you know, they ask for your phone and like, why? Yeah. And they get real snappy. It's like, no, you don't want to start out that contentious relationship like right. that. So to me, it's like, I don't think it's important. I think when companies are like, cool, user phones doesn't matter. Like, cool, great. Yeah. I won't pull my phone out. Right. But, right. you know, if another group wants to go through and take photos in a game, like, sure, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and and for me, uh, even like the first 40, 50 rooms, um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't forced it was like implied like hey like you know you want to lock up your phone for safekeeping like you know you might end up to crawling or running and you don't want it to get yeah, no, away, right? i will take some out of my pockets because like when i'm crawling or walking on my keys digging into yeah. me like especially games are very physical yeah you know i don't want to sit on my phone so yeah i might leave it behind in that instance but i like having because invariably i take photos with my phone and i don't want to go back to a locker right and i like having it nearby or in the room so yeah. at the very least letting us have our stuff in the room or in our pockets and then if we need to get back to it, it's cool. Great. Yeah. But I think anything that can put the customer and the staff in opposition mm -hmm. and again, can set off that relationship in a negative way is not worth it. Right. Right. Can you talk about um, how important it is to have a, I don't want to say a good group when completing an escape room, but 
a room that you know works well together, right? Because you mentioned um, this is where a group can have, you know, that person that's like, I don't want to be here. I just got dragged into it. I want to be on my phone. Yeah, I mean, that's the eternal debate about public versus private bookings. Right. Um, I think flat out companies that do public bookings are in the wrong and they're greedy. Uh, I understand the motivation why you would do that, but I, I, I would never do it. And I think there are companies that do it that are flat out looking to have more money and who can argue that as a business. But I think you're also sacrificing your customer experience that way. Now, I don't mind it if there is a, we're public, but for an extra fee, you can make it private. Okay, fine. That yeah. works, whatever. Yeah. But if you cannot make it private unless you buy every single ticket, that to me is setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Um, I think I think what happens is you're looking at two things. You're looking at profit mm -hmm. and you're looking at element of benefit from private bookings. Obviously, you're trying to squeeze as many people into a game as possible. Right. Which, you know, companies know the actual optimal number. Rarely is it the maximum. Right. You know, right. Um, rarely. And obviously, with public booking, you're, they're pushing towards filling that game up yeah. every single time. Slot. Yeah. You are reducing the impact of that game. It, to me, it shows the company does not care about the experience inside that game. Right. Um, I know companies would argue with me and say, rah, 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 but no, it's true. Like flat out, you're, you're not controlling for the quality of the game. Right. Additionally, you run the risk that a game can be ruined by a stranger. Yeah. And I've been in games like that where there's been a stranger that has been a jerk. Maybe in some games I've been that jerk. Mm. Like obviously they don't intentionally try to go ruin certain right. games. Right. And I haven't played with a lot of strangers. Um, especially lately, it seems that things are more thankfully cleanly going to private. Yeah. But you do have the element of control for, again, we talked about it. What can you control? You can't control the weather. You can't control the attitude going in, right. their experience level, but you can control the lighting and the sound and yeah. what's happening inside yep. to a degree. But you can't control other people's behavior. And if an asshole in... It's your fault for that group. You're not going to yeah. blame the GM. Right. But if there's a stranger paired up and you have a bad experience you will probably end up blaming the game or have a negative experience. And that to me is so crucial, you know, a differentiator that people don't make that, but they will always associate that negative experience with the game itself. And I don't think it's worth it as a creator who wants people to walk out having a good time. And in my mind, I would argue that the money you lose from not squeezing in groups will mean that every group that walks out has a more optimal experience because the group is not being packed tight mm -hmm. by external factors you can choose to fill it up with a maximum or not right you can choose how big your group is and if you walk out feeling like the experience was better in my mind you're going to recommend that company more yeah. and you're going to get positive word of mouth rather than just like squeezing them for the money and then they walk out annoyed yeah. and they're not going to recommend it like they have your money sure but you're going to get more in my mind from that positive word of mouth that's how i've always operated is that word of mouth and positive feelings after a game are more valuable than the initial 20 or 30% you'd get from squeezing more tickets out of them, you know? Right. So, right. Um, now the big caveat I'll say is that I have made great friends with strangers I played in games. Two of my best friends I met playing a game early on. Mm -hmm. And um, that is magical when you get people to connect that way. Yeah. But the risk I think you take from matchmaking strangers to play well together to them not getting along and the experience being ruined, I would always defer to private games. Yeah.
Yeah, and I think to add to that, especially a game that they they uh, intentionally, you know, like you said, try to pack it as much as they can, and it doesn't accommodate not to that big group. It's definitely a big killer. We did a, a room where it's a public game, and um, and usually in the group that I go with, it's like three or four people, <laughs> and I guess I think the limit was like eight or nine. So they had like three, three, three other people, and so you know we're trying to divide it to like, hey, like even if we can't effectively communicate with the other group we'll you know stick like one or two people from our team that we know that hey we can yell at and call an idiot if like they do something wrong and um yeah and even then like it was like a can of sardines and you're like and you know the person i was with the other group was like yeah like i felt like i didn't do anything yeah and then halfway through the other group just ended up walking out anyways and it's like well now you got your chance to shine right but even then just the games that don't accommodate for it are definitely experience killer yeah. And again, I think it's all about a mixture of how profit driven are they? And again, I get no businesses in the business of being a charity, but at the same time, in my mind, they, I think are underselling the impact of experience and reviews and the quality of their games, like the pride in you taking your game and the experience you want people to have it. In. So to me, I will always judge a company that has public games. I just, I always will. and always will look down on them. Even some big chains have them and I know the way they try to justify them. But to me, the justification is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Tommy, for uh, joining us today. Um, I'd like to conclude with top five favorite escape rooms. And- oh, the eternal struggle. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to rank the top five. Um, I, I'll i toss out five ones that I really enjoyed that I left a big impact on me. Okay. Um, so in no particular order, um, the Evil Geniuses Morgue, that the first iteration was in LA out here and now it's in the Bay Area. But the morgue had some amazing moments that were nerve-wracking and scary and just really, really, really cool and brilliant. And I think Patrick's a brilliant designer. Uh, so I loved that that game, especially going in not knowing what to expect. Mm-hmm. I love going into games or experiences blind. Yeah. Um, sure. So just from the pure impact. Um, another one I'd have to say is the Ghost of Mentryville out here in uh, Santa Clarita, Matt Ty from Arcane. That game is brilliant because it's small and weird and different and uses a very small space in some really, really clever ways. Yeah. So walking into that game was really inspiring because that game just does so many unique aspects with a tiny, tiny space yeah. that I just walked out being like blown away by what's possible with that, with like a small space and with a really good performer, some really cool use of props and like furniture and just like telling a really cool spooky story. Yeah. Uh, obviously the man from beyond in, um, Houston from strange bird is just incredible. And as a story is incredibly moving. And I was recapping a part of that game to, uh, my escape room class and I got choked up talking about it, which surprised me because the game is so beautifully constructed and just are, you know, articulate in every aspect of what it does. It's just amazing work of art. Um, Something, I don't know which game I'd pick from uh, Escape R.E.M. in Montreal, but Jonathan Driscoll is just an, a, an insane man. The games he makes in Montreal are incredible. I would probably say Forgotten Cathedral is just a work of art. Mm. It is a big, irresponsibly expensive game with a scale that is just staggering. And um, yeah, the, the level of that he plays at physically is amazing. And then probably something in... Um, Actually, you know, I'm going to say uh, it's a tie between uh, Miss Jezebel and uh, The Pursuit of the Assassin Artist. Um, both those games had really cool online versions of their games that I think actually worked better 
than anything physical. And the just amount of agency and leaning into kind of the storytelling of what they both did, where you as a player online have agency and, and the way the games are designed was really, really clever. So to me, it's like I'm looking for, obviously, I'm a sucker for spectacle. But for things that can tell story or have really cool mechanics, um, just blow me away. I'm sure I could come up with 10 more or five more tomorrow. Uh, you know, that is a completely different list. But to me, those are the games that really left me really inspired. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our episode today. And then for our listeners, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and make sure to play Stash House. Yeah, uh, Stash House. Uh, my name is Tommy Houghton. I've designed a lot of stuff around the world. So uh, just look for me and uh, you'll find something crazy I've done.